This is Real Estate Rookie, episode number 87. The moment we started and I started truly listening to bigger pockets, other people that were on the same path as me, the fear just like diminished truly because all I needed was a few people to say, hey, this, this works. My name is Ashley and I am here with Tony and we are the co-host of the Real Estate Rookie podcast. What's going on, Tony? What's up, Ashley? We are back with another beautiful episode with some beautiful people. I really enjoyed today's podcast. We have a husband and wife duo and they shared some really cool, I think, strategies they're using to build some value in their properties. But more importantly, and the cool part was that they shared how they both left their W-2 jobs during COVID to go full time in real estate. Yeah. So today we have Nick and Sam on. They were actually guests of Tony's first podcast before he came on to the Real Estate Rookie. But even he was amazed at how much just in the past year they have transitioned and changed their lives from leaving their W-2. They both started two new real estate specific kind of careers to help build their real estate empire. But now they're kind of branching out and helping other people and taking on clients too. So it's really interesting to find out what those niches are that they decided to pursue once they left their W-2 jobs. Yeah. And Sam, I think at one point does a really good job of breaking down like five things they look for to add value in a property when they're shopping around. So just make sure you guys listen the whole way through because they drop a lot of golden nuggets throughout the entire interview. Yeah. They also live in high cost of living area too. And that's where they are investing. So if you have been stuck in your own market and you want to invest locally, but you feel like it's too expensive, this is a great podcast to listen to because they're making it happen and they are getting really, really great cash flow. I mean, Tony was taking it back. How are you doing this? So uh, yeah, make sure you guys listen all the way through. And if you guys are watching this on our YouTube channel, please make sure to like, subscribe, hit that little bell notification. That way you are notified as soon as we release a new YouTube video. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. Are current interest rates making you depressed about cash flow? What if it didn't have to be that way? Rent to Retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate where the average cash flow is over $900 per month. They also have options where you can put as low as 5% down on multiple investment properties with no PMI. Rent to Retirement is the nation's leading turnkey investment company that understands what it takes to be successful in today's dynamic real estate market. Their reputation speaks for itself with more five-star reviews than any other company on the Bigger Pockets website. Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest with confidence in the markets that offer the best returns. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's rent retirement.com or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. You ever feel like your vacation rental since empty too often? Missing out on potential income? Look, you're not alone. Many property owners struggle with underperforming bookings and the complexities of property management. But here's some good news. Vacasa outperforms other property managers in 92% of the markets they operate. They've helped homeowners like you increase their bookings by an average of 24%, turning those empty days into profitable opportunities. Want to see what your earnings could look like with Vacasa? 
Visit biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, and get a free personalized income estimate today. That's biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. Sam and Nick, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Rookie Podcast. Super excited to have you both on here today. Thank you. We're excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Little backstory, Sam and Nick were actually guests on my old podcast, the Your First Real Estate Investment Podcast. I don't remember what number, but uh, I think it was one of my top performing podcasts. So I was super glad to have you guys back on to the Real Estate Ricky Show to kind of share your story. So before we get into the deal details and all that good stuff, just tell us a little bit about the two of you. Okay. Yeah. So we have been investing for about three or four years now. We've been together since we were like 14 or 15 years old. And are now married. So Nick was the catalyst of real estate investing and decided when he was like 17 that he was going to start planting the seed. Takes a long time for me. So that was really good. Um, And once we graduated college, uh, we moved into our parents' basement, started saving money and kind of took off our real estate investing career from there. That's great. Nick, I want to hear from you as to, okay, why when you were 17, did you think that you wanted to be in real estate investing? I mean, most 17 year olds don't think that way. Yeah, that it's an awesome question. I wish I had a great answer for it. I think I came from like, my dad was self-employed. So I, I sort of came from that environment, but never had anyone in my family that was into real estate. No one, I, we knew nothing about it. I think if I recall, like probably all of us, I started Googling and then we found bigger pockets. And so that was like kind of what got me hooked at that point. But yeah, no family connections or anything. I think I just always had the desire to like want to do more than a W-2. I didn't want to be tied to a career. Again, I don't know why I was thinking that at a young age, but I was. And then it kind of drew me in. Can you guys give us an overview of your current business, like where it stands today? How many deals have you done? How many units do you guys manage, operate, own? Yeah. So our core investing business, we have done three deals and it's six doors total. We're in Boston, Massachusetts. Okay. I want to know, so you guys built this over, was there any analysis paralysis? So you wanted to, you started thinking about this when you were 17. How long until you actually bought that first property? Yeah, so it was it was a while. Again, we were young, we went to college. But what we did was post-college, we moved in with my parents, uh, lived in their basement to save up. So I don't think we had a ton of like your textbook analysis paralysis. I think it was a combination of like, we couldn't afford to get started right away. So we went through like the savings sort of portion first. That took us, it took us probably two years to get our first deal. But from the time we were ready until the time we were able to get under contract on something, it wasn't super long. Yeah. And, and that's like a pretty common time frame, you know, somewhere around like 18 months to two years. I think for me, it was almost two years spot on for me from the day that I said, I want to be an investor until I closed in that first property. It was about two years as well. So you see that a lot. Now, what makes you both unique is that you're also husband and wife. So your husband and wife, your business partners, I guess just give us kind of the breakdown of how you separate duties and responsibilities, who does what, who focuses on what aspects of the business. Yeah. So, I mean, I wish I had a picture perfect answer. We work on it every day, but as of right now, kind of the breakdown is, is what we found out through investing is that Nick isn't the numbers guy. He loves analyzing the deals, communicating, making relationships with realtors, the loan process and that portion of it. And he's actually transitioned careers, which I'm sure we'll chat about to be a loan officer. And then I fell in love with the construction piece. So like Everything to do with construction and design on these homes, figuring out kind of like layout, talking with architect. And then I recently in 2020 transitioned to be an actual general contractor. So we both found what we really liked and then just like dove headfirst into it. But now working together, it's some days poses challenges because I'm very type A and I'm very over communicative and things like that. So the one thing we found that really works well for us in our business is we have one shared email contact at Eagle Hill Homes, which is our business name, that a lot of the common things that, you know, if we're talking to subs, if we're reaching out to a cleaning service to come in to clean our unit when we have tenant turnover, that's the type of stuff that I love to be able to have eyes on, even if I'm not handling and the same thing with Nick. So that's something that's been really helpful, I think, has probably helped more than we know. When we just had our own emails, things kind of got lost in translation. We still have separate emails, but we do have that shared one. 
One follow-up, Sam, because I think your role in the business is a little unique. There's not as many women general contractors that you see. I guess first kudos to you for being kick-ass and, and taking on that role. But I guess what has your experience been kind of being a woman in kind of a more male-dominated role? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you. Second of all, it is like 80% imposter syndrome and then 20% Nick being like, you can do it. And then there's me. I think initially it was, I knew I really took to the construction portion. I, the design portion, I enjoy communicating with the subcontractors and building relationships and kind of being there as a point person. And it took me a while to actually say, yeah, this is what I want to do because I think I was so weary to be a woman in this man's dominated industry and hope to be taken seriously. So that was tough for me. And then doing it now, I'm so glad I did. I've never felt like I'm more in where I'm supposed to be in life. How do you become a GC? What did you have to do for anybody out there who's been thinking about getting this? What are the steps they should take? Yeah, so that's a great question. And in Massachusetts, I can speak to that process. You need to be able to, in mass, basically prove three years plus experience of design, renovation, contracting. So during those renovations that Nick and I did, those three deals, we did extensive renovations. So I kind of was the point person for those by default because we didn't have money really to hire out many people. So we hired some trades, plumbing and electric, and I think that's it. We did everything, tiling, drywall, painting, framing. We just learned through Nick's dad and through YouTube. <laughs> um, and from there, I was able to kind of gain all of that experience. How do you prove that, Sam? How would you prove that you have that experience? Did you have to show contracts or what kind of documentation should people be? Yeah. So in mass, you do need to prove either a W-2 saying, hey, I worked under this contractor and this is proof of employment. Or they do know that there's a lot of people like myself that are in unique situations where I was working a W-2 job in marketing, clearly not construction. But you can get another licensed general contractor to sign off on your behalf saying, I know this person, I know they're doing this work. And I did have kind of a friend in the industry that we've been going back and forth. And she was like, I see what you're doing. I've seen in person your work and I know that and I'm going to vouch for you. So you essentially write a letter of attestation. They sign it, you notarize it, you fill out a whole application, notarize that, mail it in. And then from there, once everything's approved and they kind of fact track everything, you get a letter in the mail, very archaic, saying, hey, you can schedule your test date. And then from there, you take an exam. So you can do two different kind of tests. And I did the unrestricted, meaning I can do kind of any building, not just one in two families, take the exam. And then once you pass the exam, you're basically good to go. Sam, what I'm kind of curious, Nick, I want to get to you because I know you've transitioned into being a loan officer also, but I'm, I'm like really into the whole GC thing right now. So like, what kind of questions are there on this GC exam? Is it like how to hang drywall? Give me steps one, two, three, and four, or, or is it more of a general thing? What, what kind of questions are you typically asked? So it's a pretty intense exam. Going into it, I heard that there were a lot of contractors that have been in the trade for like 20 years and they failed it like four times. So I was petrified. When I say petrified, I'm not kidding. The questions are, I mean, they range. It's about 1800 pages of building code that you study. And it's everything from like masonry work to foundations to interior. Some of them are pretty basic, like what's the width of a residential staircase to code? How high do a ceilings have to be in a basement or a kitchen area? Basic electric, like code and plumbing code of where are you venting fans, things like that. And then some of them are very specific, like this is how big your house is. This is how big the foundation is. What size are your joists? And you kind of need to be able to kind of problem solve on the spot there. Tony looks well, like he's getting a little dizzy thinking of having to know all those things. <laughs> oh, 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 my God. <laughs> Have you guys seen the meme of Zach Galifianakis, the guy from The Hangover? He's doing the, the math and he's got all the numbers spinning around to say anyway. Um, yes. Sam, Sam, I'm curious, what, what was your motivation for getting your license? Like, it's not a prerequisite to be an investor, to be a flipper, to be a, anything, to have the license. What was it that, that made you want to go down that path? Yeah, so initially... It started as we're investing in this expensive Boston market and the units that were the buildings that we're looking at were typically two, three, four unit buildings and anything over three units in the Boston area, you need to have a licensed general contractor. 
So the thought was, I enjoy this. Why don't I do it? Again, it was back and forth for a little, but it started definitely as let's use this as a tool. This seems to be a problem and a roadblock in our business. How can we overcome it? Instead of just paying the piper, I will become that person for us. So that's how it started. And then from there, it's kind of snowballed. And I accidentally, essentially, I'm now taking on clients. Like the first client kind of fell into my lap. I say it accidentally because Nick was like, do it. And I was like, I can't imposter syndrome. And then once I did it, I'm realizing this again, on top of investing and doing it for us, I'm really enjoying kind of the client aspect of it. So definitely like another leg of our business and avenue for us to be able to generate income to put into rental properties. One last question on this before we go to Nick, but what are the fees? So a lot of people say, oh, should I be a realtor? And people say, well, not if unless you're going to take on clients because you have to pay for your credits every month, your education credits every year, not month. And you have to pay to be a realtor. What does that look like as a general contractor? What's If you were just going to do your own properties, is it still worth it for someone to go out and be a general contractor? Yeah, so it definitely depends. For fees, I mean, to get up and running, you're looking at a couple hundred dollars to like take the exam. It was probably about five plus hundred dollars to purchase the material. So about, say, a thousand dollars to actually obtain the license. And then you're paying for your liability insurance, workman's comp and... I think that's pretty much it. And then registering with the city as kind of being able to be a contractor licensed. So I would say from there, yearly, a couple thousand dollars, five plus in order to do that. So again, if you're doing one property a year, it could be something that might not work out in your favor. But I mean, the percentage that you typically pay a general contractor, depending on the area, depending on scope of work is anywhere from like 10, 12 to 20 plus percent of your project costs. So here in Boston, where our projects, the last one we did, our renovation budget was 150,000. So like 15% of that makes sense. But in different markets, it definitely is something people might have to evaluate. Okay, so Nick, let's make sure you are paying attention. Can you please answer all of those questions? But <laughs> it's a loan officer. <laughs> okay, so Nick, why did you transition to becoming a loan officer? Yeah. So I think similar to Sam, it was, we were kind of trying to follow our passion. That was why we got into real estate. And I think probably I can speak for a lot of us. That's the reason was we wanted to be able to follow our passions, create our own future, things like that. And for me, it was, I was really interested in the the finance and the mortgage piece, but sort of more than that was like, I found that it was an, an avenue I could help people do similar things to what we were trying to do. And it was a career that I could do it. So now like I get to spend a lot of time with people that are looking to house hack or obviously people that are just looking to get primary residences. But the really fun part is people looking to do what we're doing. And now I get to help them and, and coach them. And it's I get paid to do it, which is great. So what did you have to do to become a loan officer? I mean, take a task, get licensed. I do work for a bank credit union. How does all yeah, that yeah. Work? So I work for, it's called a correspondent lender. So not actually a bank, but lend directly to through Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. And yeah, it's, you have to get licensed. So you need to do, I think in, at least in Massachusetts, but I think it may be universal. You need to do like 40 hours of training, pass the test, What was unique for us was our loan officer who we started with on our first property, who saved our first deal, became like this mentor to us. And then that's eventually who took me in. And now I'm working with him. So it kind of came full circle. Yeah. So you both have kind of like an interesting path. So Sam, you said you were working in marketing before. Nick, what were you doing prior to the loan officer? Yeah, I was in corporate insurance sales. Got it. So neither of you were doing anything related to real estate investing. And actually, I've talked about this in the podcast before, but changing your like your day to day job or changing your day to day hustle, your day to day grind to be real estate focused has so many benefits, right? Like Ashley always says that she was a property manager and that's how she kind of cut her teeth. You being the, the GC, Sam, Nick, you being the loan guy, like those are all the tools and skills that you guys need to be able to continue to build your real estate portfolio. So for the real estate rookies that are listening, if you're maybe unhappy in your current W2 job, you're maybe feeling a little unfulfilled, it's not necessarily quit your job, but it's like, okay, how do I transition my career into something that's more closely aligned with my goals of being a real estate investor? So I guess the question for you both, Nick, if you want to go first and Sam, you can take second. 
was it scary at all kind of leaving your old jobs that you knew and jumping into this whole new world that you didn't know anything about? And if so, how did you break past that fear? And you guys did this around the same time too, right? I'll try to find a way to keep this short, but the learning lesson was honestly, and and I think this is probably good for everyone listening. It wasn't that scary for me. We felt like we had taken all the right steps. We were very calculated We happened to do this at the beginning of a global pandemic. We did it together and we were still funding a six-figure renovation. So at the time, we felt very confident. We were not very nervous. It did become incredibly challenging. So I would say to your point, Tony, you want to make sure everything is very calculated. But ultimately, it was an incredible learning lesson. And now at this point that we're through it and we're on the other side of those struggles, we wouldn't change it. But it was definitely incredibly challenging. What's a recommendation to rookies who want to quit their job? I mean, we hear people that say, I want to get into real estate, so I'm going to quit my job so I can focus on real estate. But what would your guys' advice to be? What did you look for in your lives to know this is the time to quit our jobs? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing for us was... We got to a point where our, and again, only three, it was only three properties, but we were able to cover our living expenses. So we told ourselves we didn't want to take the huge leap of faith until we got to that point, because ultimately now we at least still had that to protect us. It was just a huge change from incomes from salaries that we were used to, to now being not direct salaried employees. So it was just a major change, major mind shift change. I think there's always the school of thought of like dive in head first, at least for us, it was nice, very nice to at least have the security blanket that we did knowing our life expenses were covered. So that definitely made it a little bit easier for us to do. There's so many different schools of thoughts on taking the leap to leave your W-2, but I think the point that you made that the rookies need to hear is that your real estate business was already covering your basic living expenses. It's not like you had no income coming in or you had no safety net there like you knew that even if all else went poorly, you at least had your basic living expenses covered. Now, I'm curious, right? So how many deals did you guys have at the time when you actually left? Was it the three that you currently have? Like were those three operating rentals? And if so, like what strategy are you guys using to kind of maximize the revenue? Because most people aren't able to kind of walk away from the W-2 jobs. It's only three traditional long-term rentals. So I'm curious what strategy you guys are using. Yeah. So out of the three, we had a so three deals. One's a condo, one's a three family, and one is an owner-occupied two-family. The condo, to be honest with you, was kind of like our introduction into real estate investing. It was kind of, we'll live here for a minute and then wait and get a, a multifamily. So it really was not, it does not still to this day profit, maybe $50 if we're lucky, but it's one of those things that's in a really appreciating area and, and equity is on our side. So it was basically two properties that we had that were able to allow us to leave our jobs, which is also something to note for rookies out there. If you're in an expensive market, it's scary and it's hard, but you can do it with a small amount of properties and it's definitely doable. You just got to find ways to add value in your properties and put your mind to it. But to answer the question more along the lines of kind of like financially and how it worked out with the numbers, we were profiting about $2,800 a month from our three family. And we were living in our two family profiting about $1,000 a month. So that's kind of what that looked like and how we were able to say, okay, we don't have a mortgage and we have this money coming in to pay our expenses and things like that. We also paid off our car. We you know, d- did things where we didn't have a ton of monthly payments going out, which allowed us to feel better about that. So yeah, that's kind of what that looked like at the time. I mean, that, that's pretty good. You said $2,800 per month on a three family. That's like over 900 bucks a month, right? That's per unit, right? Yeah. Were you able to generate that much value because you guys got it at such a steep discount or is it, I don't like, just, I guess, how did you guys get to such good numbers on a per unit basis? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing was we did, we bought it as a two family and then did major renovations and converted it to a three family. I think when we were analyzing the property, we were looking at it like, okay, do we keep it as a two family? The gentleman that owned it had it as he was owner occupied. He had a large family, so he was using two levels for him. So what we did was basically separate it into three uh, and it became the numbers from there were obviously a lot. Well, not actually not obviously, but they were a lot better. And then we did extensive rehabs. Like we took one of the rents, which was really below market, but 
just an example, we took one of the rents from 900 a month to 1950 per month. So, and that was with like a $25,000 renovation budget. So the return on that was huge. You guys had one investment, you had this condo and you find this two unit. I think most rookie investors wouldn't have the foresight, I guess, to think, okay, this investment doesn't make sense as a two family, but it makes sense as a three family. What kind of tipped you both off to making that decision? And were you not afraid of taking on this really big rehab project of converting this two unit into a three unit? Great question. We were apprehensive, but I can say that because we had been looking for so long for a multifamily property and it wasn't working out for us and we kind of landed in this condo, we felt like, okay, this is our time. So that's the fear aspect of it. The interesting and funny story about this whole thing was that it was actually, so the condo we purchased was on the bottom floor of three condos and they were recently converted to condos. It used to be a three family building. We purchased the bottom floor and I became friendly with the neighbor on the next building over. It was connected. So from the outside, it looks like six big units, but they're individual in the middle. Became friends with her. She one day, like six or eight months, I think, after we purchased and moved into our condo, texted me being like, my landlord's selling and I'm going to have to move. And she had lived there like 10 years. And I was like, can I have his number? Um, so to her, she was like, why? Like, you weirdo. I had never even really said out loud to people that I wanted to invest, which is another tidbit of like, tell everyone, you know, because that's a great example of it coming to you instead of you kind of having to work for it. But I got his number and I said, Hey, I'm the one that lives downstairs. I heard you're selling. I'm really interested. Nick was away on a business trip and I texted him and I was like, I think I just got us, got us our first multifamily deal. So we walked the property and it was set up really similarly to kind of our condo and the ones upstairs. So knowing that it was a really similar footprint, I had that moment where I was like, this could work. It definitely looked very small because they are one bed, one bath units in Boston. It's a tighter space. But I think that was the first time that I had that click of like, I see it, it can happen. So we negotiated the property with him via text a little bit and then kind of went into an off-market deal from there. Let's talk about that, an off-market deal. So approaching a seller and then the negotiation. So you negotiated through text. So did you put out the offer first or did he tell you a price first? How did that work? And then I'm interested, okay, you guys agreed on a price How did it go from there? Because if you're buying off the MLS, your realtor takes care of it, gets your contract done, everything like that. So who handles the paperwork? Yeah, great question, because I was asking Nick the same thing, (laughs) because he's the one that really, like I said, just kind of gravitated to that. But I'll kind of take kind of this process, then I'll let him speak to paperwork too. But process for me was I kind of said, hey, heard you're selling or looking to sell. It was a quick situation. He needed to, his wife had gotten a job in California and he needed to move like ASAP. So I think for him, it was exciting that there was somebody interested that could get the deal done quickly. So I basically said, what are you looking to sell for? And kind of put it back on him. I didn't want to over, you know, at this point I was so eager, I was afraid to over offer. So I kind of asked him, he came back with saying, I'm looking for 600 50,000 and I'm really looking to close quickly. We went back and forth and a fun fact is that we went back and forth negotiating via text while Nick and I were overseas in Italy. We were leaving for a vacation like the next day and I'm like, "All right, whatever, we'll do this. It's a good thing for technology." We ended up going back and forth and then submitted a formal offer paper-wise. I think we honestly found templated just to kind of get the offer in on the internet at 630. And he took a couple days and then accepted our offer the day we were leaving. But the day before we left the country, Nick decided to propose and not tell me that we were going to have a massive wedding when we got home. So we came home to planning and paying for our dream wedding that we've been planning for the past 10 years and moving all of our belongings, getting our unit that we lived in rented and then fully renovating this unit. But Nick, you can definitely speak to if there's anything I missed there on the process. Jeez, and Nick, how dare you propose to her? What bad timing. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, you didn't tell me. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, Nick, I want to hear about the paperwork side of it. So you, you, obviously you want to get a signature. It's way better to have something written in place rather than a handshake deal. 
So did you get a letter of intent? That's what I've used. I, and I pulled off a template off of Google, really, for that. Yeah. So funny enough, I mean, again, we were only present for like really the first walkthrough and then we had left. So it was all done at the beginning via text. And again, we kind of didn't know any better. Like we were just kind of on the fly figuring it out. And so we started that way. And then we were like, okay, now that he's at least interested, now we need to get this thing locked up. So yeah, we did uh, Google. I think our local realtor association had the template forms that we could download. So we did that. Our loan officer helped us a ton who connected us with a good attorney and they kind of acted as the agent for us. But yeah, I mean, it was a huge learning curve trying to go from like texting internationally, then get the document signed, get our first property. It was a whirlwind for sure. And I want the listeners to know that that's not a bad thing to negotiate before there's any paper. I recently just did this with an off-market deal for a guy that wants to do seller financing. I spent probably five plus hours with him at his house, sitting at his kitchen table with his wife over, you know, a course of two days to going there two separate times and just negotiating with them and figuring out what he really wants and listening. And I think you guys showed that, that you talked to him first. And that was great, Sam, that you asked, you put it onto him as to, okay, what are you looking for out of this deal? And you knew his motivation that he was ready to move and wanted to get rid of it, wanted a quick and easy closing. So that's awesome. Can we touch a little bit, Ash, before we move on about the financing? I'm curious how you guys financed this three unit and the, both the purchase and the construction of it. Now, funny, so it was we did FHA financing, so we did 5% down. The renovation, our, we didn't wrap it into the loan, so we kind of self-funded it. So it was uh, a lot of sleepless nights trying to figure out, like, are we going to pay the band? Or are we going to pay the plumber? But we ended up working it out in the budget itself. We were a little nervous on that, too, because that was something we were really learning for the first time. We ended up going a little bit over the expected budget, but the all-in budget ended up being like 80000 on that. Got it. And then did you guys refinance after all of the construction was completed? Like, was this a burr or was it more of just a traditional long-term? Yeah, so we actually pulled a home equity line of credit on it, which helped us fund our next deal. And then we did a refinance to pay off that full home equity line of credit. So we kind of double dipped on it, really. <laughs> <laughs> but it works, right? I mean, and that it's leveraging what you have. And that's one of the beauties about real estate investing is there's so many different ways to fund your deals. So you guys use the resources that you had at hand to make sure that it worked. Now, I guess one more question on, on the rehab portion, because I think this is where we see a lot of questions from the rookies as well is how are you guys going about like creating your scope of work, knowing what work should be done, knowing what's going to add value, knowing what you guys shouldn't do? How does that whole process come together? Yes. So, I mean, and if I can speak to it much better now. At the time, it was more so kind of like, I think this is what we should do. And I think this is what it will cost. Nick's dad, my father-in-law had been in the business for a while and he definitely was a resource for us for sure. Kind of saying like, this is kind of what we're thinking. And he would give us the like, hey, Sam, that's going to be expensive. Or that seems like you could potentially pull it off. But for just kind of like a general rule of thumb, our kitchens were kind of small. So that was working in our favor. We weren't moving a ton of, well, a little bit, but we weren't moving a ton of plumbing. So that was working in our favor. So we were able to keep the costs a little bit low on that. But Nick, do you remember kind of how how we even went about that? I think I was blacked out from planning a wedding and renovating. <laughs> no, I, I think the biggest thing like that helped us and I think would help a lot of people was we had missed out on so many deals prior to that one that we understood what sort of constituted a, a good unit in our area, like what was important, what wasn't important. So we kind of catered to that. Like we got to see what some other homes had and what they were renting for. So a lot of just like local market analysis, the construction piece, like the technical side of it. I mean, as we all know, I mean, you just need to learn or rely on someone who does know it. But the actual deciding what to do was really just trying to compare to what the market had. So now that you both have been around the block a couple of times, what are some things you look for when you're analyzing new properties or considering new potential purchases to add value in those units? Yeah. So I think we definitely have like five core things that we look for. Number one is I think the best play in the world. And we actually did it on our next property that we've yet to kind of speak to, but I'm sure we will is, is the basement. 
Some of these basements in these homes have very high ceiling height and there is so much potential to add either a unit, more living space, put some bedrooms and bathrooms down there and your appraisal is like skyrocketing. So that's kind of the number one thing. And then any ability in the Boston area, these are like city homes. We're renting usually to groups of friends, two or three plus groups of friends. A lot of times there's dining rooms. So can you take that dining room and turn it into a bedroom? You don't need a formal dining room. You add a peninsula with some bar seating and that suffice for what you're looking to do. So adding kind of basement unit, adding a bedroom in that dining space or anywhere else, any place you can add a bathroom, even if it's a half bath, that value add is definitely there. If you can do it off the kitchen or back to back on another bathroom where there's already plumbing, that's even better. So that's definitely something. And then kind of what we did with that last deal, there was a bi-level unit and that's pretty common, especially in this area that we see a lot. So being able to analyze, hey, is this going to make us more money being a bi-level with three bedrooms upstairs and your kitchen living downstairs? Or is this going to make us more money being two separate units? So splitting the units, obviously there's some permitting and zoning that you have to deal with there. But if it's going to work out in your favor, and usually it does, especially in a market that has pretty high rents, that's something to always look for. And then the last thing I would probably say is there's options to add an ADU unit. So an additional dwelling unit. Boston actually has a program that you can do. Say you have, even if it's a single family house or a two family and there's a lot out back with a garage, are you using the garage? Do you want to turn the garage into a, a single, a one bed, one bath rental? What if you're owner occupied in Boston, it can be an Airbnb if you're owner occupied. If you're not owner occupied, you could rent it out. So there's definitely areas to add value. And that's kind of our biggest thing that we preach to any investor that's looking to get started because it had helped us so dramatically is if you can find a way to add it, aim for that and kind of look for those things when you're looking for your properties because a lot of people don't see them as positives. When you're looking for deals, how are you finding these deals with these kinds of value add? Is it just MLS? Are you guys doing direct mail? How are you sourcing your deals right now? So we've done a little bit of everything. We've done MLS, we've done direct mail, a lot of like Facebook groups and things like that where deals get passed around. But quite honestly, a, a lot of decent and good deals, at least here, it's not a huge wholesale presence, but a lot of agents sort of source deals like that. So we've just tried to build up our agent network. And that's been, we have more deals that come our way than we can act on. So that's been one good sort of avenue that we've taken. So almost like pocket listings where they're not actually listing them on the MLS, they're bringing them to you guys instead. First. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's a great strategy to get in the know with a, a real estate agent and have the deals brought to you. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. I'm curious, have you been struggling to keep your vacation rental booked? I totally get it. It's tough to manage and keep filled. But we found something that really works. It's called Vacasa. They've seriously changed the game for a lot of the BP audience. In almost every market they're in, Vacasa manages to fill up the calendar more than anyone else. And get this, the average Vacasa user sees about 24% more bookings than with other managers. That's a lot of extra income. Curious to see what you could be earning? You can get a personalized income estimate right there. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what Vacasa can do for you. Check out biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A. Biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. 
Hiring, your search is over. Really, there's no need to search. Match instead with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates super fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to hire top talent faster. Speaking of top talent, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. But why do I love Indeed? Because I'm busy and scrolling through 300 resumes is not helping my business grow. It's actually making it slow. With Indeed, I can hire faster and know I'm getting someone who can do the job. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to post your jobs with more visibility at Indeed.com slash rookie. Just go to Indeed.com slash rookie right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash rookie. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So let's go back to you guys are house hackers. That is such a great strategy to get started in real estate. So what are some things that how uh, people who want to start house hacking, what are some things they should know maybe about the financing or, and you kind of looked at value add. So what are some things people need to know if they want to get into house hacking? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing with house hacking is it's going to be a low down payment. Therefore, you're going to have PMI or private mortgage insurance. And, And I hear it all the time that People look at it as a reason not to act or such a negative. And I would just say to have the ability to be able to finance 97% of a property and in areas, I mean, up to like a million dollars. I mean, who gets that opportunity to leverage that much? And yeah, you're going to pay monthly mortgage insurance, but that's an incredible opportunity. So I think that's the biggest thing. Realize the opportunity you have, because I think we've noticed now that we're now looking outside into commercial loans and and all that. I mean, it's kind of my next point is the terms are never going to be as good as they are owner-occupied. So at least when you're starting out, if you can start owner-occupied, the advantages to doing so from a a mortgage standpoint is, again, incredible. You're going to get 30-year amortized loans when you're owner-occupied, Commercial side, 20 to 25 years, you can have 30-year fixed, whereas commercial, you're only looking for shorter arms. So I think those would probably be the biggest things that I think make house hacking so advantageous. I have one follow-up on the house hacking. How has it been being so close to your tenants? Like, do they just come knocking on your door saying, hey, my light bulb's out? Uh, Like, how do you guys manage that relationship? I think we've done a pretty good job or as good of a job as we can because, right, they know where we are, but we've really tried to implement protocols. So service requests are not knock on my door and, and let me know. They're not text me and let me know. Like you have to email the email address, submit what your issue is. And we do everything sort of that way. We've really tried our best to still treat it as a business, try to just almost look at us as we're just other people in the building But then we'll deal with them either on the phone or email. But we try to do as little of direct human interaction as possible and try to create that barrier. And the other thing, like the biggest thing I can say that's worked for us is really you have to have, it's of course a different relationship when you're living in the same building versus not. So we just try to be really respectful and make sure that they respect us. And it's worked really well. I think 
with our tenants that we live with, it's a little bit more interactive at times than we would like, but we've definitely created the respect and they understand that we're the landlords. So I think just setting that precedent is huge. I want to take us to our mindset segment, but before we do, just one last question on the property management. How much time would you say you all put in between your units actively managing those properties? Is it an hour a week, five hours a week? What does that look like? Yeah, I would say when we're not, when there's no renovations or anything going on, I mean, we also really an hour to two hours, maybe a week, even like renewals, we use an agent to handle that. And they just get paid a broker fee from the tenant. So we've tried to sort of manage what we can and delegate what we can. So it's really not a lot hours wise per week. Are you guys using any software at all? Yeah, I was actually just going to mention that. So we use an online rents software called Cozy, but it's actually now transitioning, I believe, in like a couple of days to apartments.com. They're under each other, but we have our tenants pay their rent online via the app. They can go online and either do direct deposit or just kind of monthly go in and do that. So that's been a, a game changer for us. I think after like the first tenant, we were like, we're doing this. This is how it's going to be done. And the platform updates us kind of every on the first and then third and fifth. Hey, this is what your payment looks like and goes right into kind of our account. So we found it very helpful for sure. We also list um, when we do list on our own, which lately we've been using our agent connections to kind of list the units for us. But in the past, we'd use that to kind of like blast out listings. And it's been very effective as well. Now, you both have grown a lot, I think it seems, since your first condo that, that you guys got. So I want to talk a little bit about the mindset. If you think about Sam and Nick, before you got that first investment, what were some of the misconceptions you had about real estate investing, whether about how hard it was, what skills you needed to develop, who you needed to become? What were some of the misconceptions you had that you found to not be true as you actually journeyed down this road? I definitely had probably more than Nick <laughs> for kind of fear and misconceptions. So I'll I'll take a little of it and then I'm sure he had some too. But my first kind of apprehension was, which now funny enough, being a general contractor, but is you have to be handy, turned into being handy, but was not handy before. So that was like, what are we going to, I mean, my question to Nick, when we'd have these conversations, what are we going to do when the toilet breaks at 2am? And I'm sure that's the same quoted sentence everyone's heard in this investing market or the questions your mom and dad ask you, or the people you look at that are close to you, what are you going to do when this? And I let that scare me a lot, to be honest. I'm that type of person that like it got deep into me. And I was like, this people are telling me to be apprehensive, which means I should be. And I think I would even tell myself going back years from years ago to stop listening to advice from people that haven't been on the same path that you have. Most of the people I was taking this like heartfelt advice from that was keeping me up at night were people who were doing nothing similar to what we were aspiring to do. So the moment we started and I started truly listening to bigger pockets, other people that were on the same path as me, the fear just like diminished truly, because all I needed was a few people to say, Hey, this, this works. Your boyfriend at the time, he's not crazy. And this is something that could really change your life. And I'm glad that I did. That's beautiful advice. Like, I love what you just said, because we've said that on the podcast so many times that your uncle Jim, who's never bought an investment property, is not the person you should be taking real estate investing advice from. You should be taking real estate investing advice from the guy or the girl who has a deal or five deals or 10 right. deals, someone that knows the market, someone that's been through a cycle or two, someone that's been doing this for a while and can really show you the ins and outs. We had someone, I think it was Tim, he was maybe on episode two or three of the podcast and his dad actually lost a lot of money in real estate. But instead of saying, I'm not going to do that, he said, I'm going to learn from what my dad did and, and do things different. And I mean, he started investing about it first couple properties. And so, yeah, it's all about having that mindset to look at things differently. Nick, what about you? I think the biggest thing is sort of along those lines, but it's perspective. So I think for us, we lived in our own little bubble for so long, like just Sam and I, and things seemed like they were really hard and really challenging. And we didn't know how to figure things out, like a lot of Google, bigger pockets, but we never really engaged with people. And I think the biggest thing, and it's sort of along the lines of what Sam is saying, but like 
being open to networking and even as simple as being on social media, like we've seen now you just see other people doing what you want to do. And then it just all of a sudden like clicks in your mind, like, oh, that actually isn't that hard. So-and-so is normal. I've met them. They're just like us and they're doing these deals. So I think just like sort of surrounding yourself with those types of people, whether you're friends or not, but seeing it makes everything just a little bit more easy to digest. Let's go to our rookie request line next. You guys can call in at any time to one 5 rookie Leave us a voicemail and we may play your question on the show. Hey guys, this is Dak from Connecticut. I'm looking at house hacking a small multifamily within this next year. My limits right now are the funds. So when I'm looking for a partner to help me fund this project, how do I kind of make it so that we're both on the same page and we have a good idea of how each of us is going to benefit. My idea is that most likely I'll be benefiting by living in this house rent-free, maybe a little bit of cash flow on the side. Now, for the partner, I'm not sure is it just going to be, okay, you're going to get paid this much, or is it going to be a thing of, you know, you're going to get the cash flow. Any ideas would help. Thank you. What I would say is not probably a terrific answer for Zach or maybe what he wants to hear, but I think... Getting started house hacking, I would say take a step back and learn a little bit more or save a little bit more. And I think there's a ton of value in learning to save your money, to leverage your own money, and to get your feet wet that way. I think there's a ton of time to leverage partnerships and grow that way. But I also think there's a ton of value in learning financial principles that it takes to get into a property. So I think that would probably help build an even stronger foundation for him going forward. And I also, we don't do a lot of partnerships, so maybe that's why that's my answer. But I just think there's good things in learning sort of those financial principles that'll help carry people forward. And Nick, maybe you can kind of help me with this response here. But if he was going to partner with someone and he's doing a house hack, if he were to go the FHA route, he wouldn't be able to have a money partner. That would have to be his own funds or it would have to be a gift from someone, correct? Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, exactly. So that's why when looking to owner-occupied, it's really hard. It's really difficult to bring in like quote unquote, partners. That's why I recommend it's a house hack situation to build your own foundation there financially. You can take on gifts. If it's FHA, it does need to be family members. So I don't recall if that was a a family partner or not. Also with gifts, I mean, the expectation is it's not going to be paid back. So that wouldn't really be a partner situation. So yeah, when it's an owner-occupied primary residence, I just think it doesn't bode well with the finance partner like it would in a true investment opportunity. Yeah, I do have an example of my sister. She house-hacked her first property, a duplex, and I helped her with that. She didn't have the funds for a down payment. So how we structured it was that I gifted her the down payment and she does not have to ever pay me back for that. We are both on the deed of the house. So we own the house 50-50, but she is the only one on the mortgage. So that mortgage doesn't affect my debt to income at all as I continue to invest. But I have an ownership percentage in that house so I can show that equity. And so how we structured it is she's living in one unit, renting out the other. The one unit pays for the mortgage. So I'm not getting anything right now. I'm getting some appreciation. But when she moves out of that property, there's the opportunity for me to get some cash flow out of it. So it can be a long-term play. And for me to purchase a property in this area, I would have had to do an all-cash offer or do 20% down, where this gave me the opportunity to get into a property as an owner at a only, I think she did 5% down. So if you do have a family member that's willing to invest, that's one way you can do it too. All right. So I want to take us to our next segment here, which is our random question. So we're, we're getting to the end of the podcast here. So I, I guess my question is for you, Nick. We get a lot of husbands or wives who have kind of gotten bitten by the real estate investing bug and they want to get their spouse on board. What was beneficial about your approach that helped get Sam on board? Right. Like, was it something that did you like give her a diamond ring with it or like how did you make it happen? I tried like coming in tidbits and dropping sort of nuggets that was not well received. What ended up working really well was 
I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I recommended it strongly that she should read it. And she took me up on it. And really, that was all it took. So I think just if you can guide someone and sort of just even explain why it's important to you rather than trying to just force it on them. And Sam, I guess one follow-up question for you. What was it about that book that kind of changed your perspective? I think it was, this sounds insane, but like somebody other than my significant other telling me that this is a proven method, which is, it's so easy to look at your significant other or business partner. There's always one that's it's always going to work out kind of person, and that's Nick. And then there's always one a little more risk averse person, which is me. So throughout our relationship, even at a young age, like he was the guy that was like, let's sell t-shirts and like do fun, different things that to me, I was like, you're crazy. So it took me a minute to be like, this isn't one of those ideas and this is serious. And I think that book really helped open my mindset. I never envisioned being this type of person in my life. I'm so happy with who I've become in my my mindset, but I never envisioned that. I was the girl that really just wanted to like get a job out of college and work really, really hard for someone else and probably not make enough money and do that whole game that my family had done and I've watched. So that book really did, it did change my life, I will say. And I do read it every year now just to remind myself like, hey, this is why you're doing this. Sam, my random question for you is what's next? I mean, just in the past year, you've had a lot of changes. So what are your goals, your dreams and your action plan for the next upcoming years? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I think about it all the time. I mean, I think from a personal investing standpoint for Nick and I and in our business, we are ready to go to purchase kind of our next investment that's going to be our first non-house hack. So we are working on refinancing the current house hack that we're in. And we had, we did a great amount of renovations and forced about $500,000 in equity into this thing. So we, yeah, we are ready to um, pull that out and move forward. Due to the job changes that we both kind of took a leap from, we had to wait a little while to refinance and get some of this money back. So it's kind of been that awkward waiting period where I've been GCing, Nick's been building up income from the loan business, and we've just been waiting to, waiting to pounce. So the time is basically now. We're in the process of starting that refinance, and we we're ready to go. So we're hoping to take a good chunk of that money and start purchasing some, continue to do buy and hold to kind of build that long-term wealth. So purchasing some investment properties in the area, And also we've been exploring kind of some flip opportunities. I, since I now have the license, it feels a little bit more attainable to be able to do that. So we're looking into that and I'm really excited about the future there. Well, I've got no doubt in my mind that you both are going to get there. You both seem like action takers. You both seem just like pure real estate rock stars. So I love it. Now, on the note of real estate rock stars, Ash and I want to highlight one of the rookie rock stars from our Facebook group. So for the listeners, if you guys aren't active in the Facebook group yet, you guys got to get in there. There's almost 30,000 active members in that group. And when I say active, they're active. There's posts in there all day, every day. I try and go in there myself sometimes, like add value to some of the conversations, but there's already so many people that have commented and like given all the good stuff. Like I can't even add anything. So just make sure if you guys aren't in there, search it through real estate rookie on Facebook. Book. Now, today's real estate rock star is Zach McDonough. McDonoughue, I think his last name is, but Zach is 22 years old and he just closed on his second unit or finished his second unit. So basically, his dad helped him with the renovations. His girlfriend actually found the deal for him, but it was a short sale that took five months to close, which is absolutely crazy, but really normal for a short sale. They spent about eight weeks in the renovations. Uh, him and his dad spent nights and weekends working on it, but it's all done now. Uh, but they purchased it for one. They spent $15,000 on the renovations and it's going to appraise for about $170,000 and they're renting it for $1,450. So it sounds like an all in all great deal, Zach. So congratulations to you, brother. Yeah, I need to add in, too, that Zach's girlfriend asked for a referral fee, too, since she found the deal. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. That a girl. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. Can you tell everyone where they can find some more information about you guys and possibly reach out to you? Yeah, absolutely. So we are on Instagram. It's at Eagle Hill Homes. And then also our website as well has some of our properties. And we're going to be posting some of our current client projects. And that is EagleHillHomes.com. And then Nick has an Instagram that sometimes he remembers the name. Go. It's Nick underscore Riccio, R-I-C-C-I-O underscore. 
Are you reading that off of a post-it? <laughs> Didn't it look? He forgets I the last. I it up every under- time. <laughs> he forgets the underscores. He's all confused. But we that was good. Okay. Well, thank you guys so much. We really loved having you both on the show. I'm Ashley at Wealth from Rentals. He's Tony at Tony J Robinson. And we will be back on Saturday with another Rookie Reply. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals. Enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and boom, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. There's free resources only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.